me to be here this morning. It was a privilege for me to worship with you, to sing with you, to recite the creed with you, and it is our privilege today to participate in the Lord's Supper together. And so I'd like us, I'd like to say to you a few things about the Lord's Supper this morning. It would be hard to calculate how many times the Lord's Supper has been celebrated in the last 2,000 years, surely millions of times, millions of times across the face of the earth that the Lord's Supper has been celebrated. The Lord intended the Lord's Supper to be so simple and so clear and so plain that all of his people across all of the earth in all the different stratas of society the educated and the well-educated, those who had been Christians a very long period of time, as well as those who are very new Christians, the Lord's Supper is meant to be simple. The Lord's Supper is meant to be easily comprehended. It should be true that every child in this room can comprehend the simplicity of the Lord's Supper. Now, what is to take place in the Lord's Supper within us is profound, but the Supper itself is actually very simple. And we see that simplicity when we look at the text where Jesus, in fact, did institute the supper. And there are five of them. Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, Luke chapter 22, John chapter 13, and 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In each of those five passages, the night where Jesus established the Lord's Supper is the focus. You remember that the Lord Jesus was crucified on Friday. Early in the morning, in the dark hours of the morning, Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was taken before mock trials and found to be guilty of blasphemy. And he was taken to the cross and he was crucified. The night before that, on Thursday evening, he gathered his 12 disciples together and met with them to celebrate the Passover. And during that meal, and at the end of that meal, he instituted the Lord's Supper. Judas was there at the beginning of that meal. During the meal, Jesus identified him, Judas, and Judas went out into the night. And Jesus was left with those 11 faithful disciples. And in that context, he established the Lord's Supper. I would like from that night and from those five passages to ask us to consider two really simple questions. The first is, what is the Lord's Supper? And it might, it might, a better heading might be, what are the chief characteristics of the Lord's Supper? What are the chief characteristics of the Lord's Supper? as set forth in those passages. And secondly, who is to partake of the Lord's Supper? Who were the original recipients of the Lord's Supper? And what should we learn about the ongoing recipients of the Lord's Supper? So I'd like us to take up that first question. What are the chief characteristics of the Lord's Supper presented in its original institution, drawing from those five passages? There are five chief characteristics that I'd like to highlight. Now, these five are going to overlap a lot, and, but I'd still like to distinguish them as five uh, just for the sake of some degree of clarity. The first characteristic, of course, is that the Lord's Supper was established by Jesus himself. Now, that's obvious, right? And maybe it'll be the most obvious thing that I say to you, but it is one of the most important things. The Lord's Supper is not the product of the church. The Lord's Supper is not the product of church councils. The Lord's Supper is not the product of holy and wise men and women meeting together and deciding this would be a good thing for us to establish something like the Lord's Supper. Jesus himself, the Lord of the church, Jesus who died in our place and has risen from the dead and presently reigns over his people, the head of the church has himself established this Lord's Supper. There are not many things that Jesus has actually commanded his church to do when it gathers. There are not many things. This is one of those things that he has established for us. 
and because he has established it, not church councils and not good men, but because he has established it, it should be given a very special place of prominence in our minds. The second characteristic of the Lord's Supper from these texts is that the Lord's Supper is a perpetual reminder of Jesus' death. It is meant to be a permanent memorial service. It is a perpetual reminder of Jesus' death. On the night before he died, he established this meal, this supper, to be a continual, perpetual reminder of his death. I'd like you to look, please, at two passages. Turn to the Gospel of Luke. Jesus institutes the supper. This is Luke uh, giving us an account of the event itself. And in this passage in Luke chapter 22, verse 19, and he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Jesus uses that word, and he says, my death, my death is to be remembered. Not sins are to be remembered. Not sins are to be remembered all the new sacrifice all the time. My death is to be remembered. My death is to be remembered in the Lord's Supper. And so even as was, we were reminded in reference to reading the creeds, we're to, be, we're to come back continually, continually to the basics of the Christian faith as expressed in the creeds, more fundamental and more important than the creeds, is that we are to gather again and again and again and again and we're to remember, we're to remember, we're to remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The third characteristic of the supper is that the Lord's Supper involves physical symbols. Physical symbols. It involves a loaf of bread and it involves a cup. We often say bread and wine. It's interesting that there, there is not any reference to wine in the scripture accounts. It's it's bread and cup, 
Now, surely the cup was filled with wine, but it's the bread and the cup. Those are the physical symbols that the Lord presents in the supper. There's no reason to think from the Bible, there's no reason to think from the Bible that the bread and the cup <clears throat> are anything other than bread and a cup filled with liquid. There's no reason to think from the Bible that the bread and the cup ever become anything other than the bread and the cup. You might know from church history there have been some uh, groups of Christians who believe that something supernatural happens to the bread and to the cup. That once it was an ordinary piece of bread and a cup of wine, that something happens in the celebration of the supper where it is changed and where the bread in some way becomes actually the body of the Lord Jesus. There are others who do not believe that, but they believe that there is some special presence of the Lord in that bread and in that cup. Not that the bread and cup actually change, but there's some special presence in them. And because of that special presence, if you eat and drink them, there's some special grace that comes to you. Well, there's, there's no reason in the Bible to believe that the bread ever changed, or that the cup ever changed. They're symbols. But we are mistaken if we depreciate the importance of symbols. We, are, we miss the whole point of the Lord's Supper if we miss the significance of symbols. Think of something like, if you're a patriot, think of the American flag. Or if, you're, if you have a patriotic connection to some other country, think of your flag. Imagine that you are a patriot of your country. Or imagine that you've actually been in battle for your country. Think of the, what is the flag? It's just a piece of cloth. Our flag is a piece of cloth that has stripes and stars and colors. It's just a piece of material. But it symbolizes something. It symbolizes the nation. And in the minds of many, it symbolizes the best aspects of the nation. So what happens when somebody burns the flag? What are they doing? Well, they're just burning a piece of cloth. But they're expressing a resentment. They're, they're expressing a hatred. They're expressing some, some rebellion against the country. What happens when somebody takes that flag and they lay it over the coffin of a dead veteran and the wife takes that flag and carefully folds it and puts it in some kind of frame and keeps it in her home? It's just a piece of material, but it symbolizes something. The, the Apostle Paul paid a great, made a great statement about the symbols of the cup and of the bread in 1 Corinthians 11. And I'd like you to turn again to that passage. He makes a statement in this passage about how some people, they're taking the cup and they're taking the bread, just the cup and a piece of bread, just a cup and a piece of bread. But they're taking those symbols and God is so unhappy with them that he's causing some of them to be ill and causing some of them to be dead because of what they did with the symbols. Look at the, the language in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats, therefore whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. You take the the bread that symbolizes the body, you take the cup that symbolizes the blood, and if you take that in such a way that is unworthy, and that's a whole issue as to what that is, but if you take those symbols in such a way that is, is inappropriate, what's, what's the problem? You've not discerned the Lord's body. You've held those symbols and you've not thought carefully enough and fully enough about the Lord's body for this reason, Many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. You get the point. Here's a piece of bread and a cup, just a piece of bread and a cup. But they are laden with symbols. I mean, they are symbols and laden with truth about the Lord. Don't trifle with the symbols because the Lord takes it as how you honor or trifle with him. They're just symbols, just bread and just a cup. But they're symbols and we mustn't treat them lightly for what they symbolize. And that, that brings us to the fourth characteristic, and that is that the Lord's Supper conveys specific truth, specific truths. The Lord's Supper conveys specific truths through its symbols. 
It conveys specific truths through its symbols. And even though the words are few, even though the statements by Jesus can be quickly restated, read and restated, even though they're few, it is in these statements that he identifies, Jesus identifies what he specifically wants, what truths he specifically wants connected to these symbols. The symbols are the bread and the cup. Well, what does he say about the bread? He says, this is my body. This is my body. He says, this is my body which is broken for you. Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it and he gives it to them and he tells them to eat it. This is my body which is broken for you. So what are we supposed to think? What truth is supposed to be in our minds? What truth does Jesus want in our minds when we take the bread? He wants us to think about the incarnation. He wants us to think that the everlasting God, and we read, of course, we read the Gospels into this. He wants us to think that the everlasting Son of God has become incarnate and has a body. He has become enfleshed and he has a body. And not only that, he wants us to realize that that incarnate body, that actual physical body that the Son of God came into and possessed and became him, that body has been broken in our place. And that, of course, is to take us back to the language of the Old Testament and to sacrifices and animals with bodies symbolically bearing the sins of the people of God and being, and being punished. Listen to these two texts. One is from the book of Hebrews, and the other is from, the, I'm sorry, one is from 1 Peter chapter 2, and one is from Hebrews. Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. Regarding Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. When we think of Jesus' body, of course we're to think of incarnation, but specifically that in that body, he bore our sins to the cross. It is a stunning thought that the everlasting Son of God, the eternal God, actually was somehow confined to a physical body. That's a stunning thing to comprehend. But at the Lord's Supper, the mystery of the incarnation is not what's to capture our attention. It is that the mystery of the incarnation produced this. It produced Jesus having a body, and in that body, he bore our sins to the cross. In that body, he, he was actually broken, and he bore our sins. The other text is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Therefore, he came into the world. This is a reference to Christ, the Messiah. Therefore, he came into the world, and he said, the quote from Psalm 40, he said, as if the Messiah says this, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings, the Christ, the Messiah, would say in reference to the old covenant offerings, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, says the Messiah, then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will. What was, what was the Father's will? The Father's will was that he would inhabit this body that in a body he would come and bear our sins. And the writer goes on to say this in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10, by which will, this will of the Father for the Messiah, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now Jesus wants that truth connected to that piece of bread when we take it at the Lord's Supper. We're supposed to think of his incarnation. We're, to think of, we're supposed to think of his body being broken for us as a sin offering, bearing our sins and being broken and crushed under the wrath of God, the wrath of God stimulated by our sins, our sins being in that, upon that body, the wrath of God being upon that body, and the effect, of course, being that that body is broken for us. The other, the other symbol, the cup, the blood, the, the, the cup is to remind us of the blood. We're supposed, to, we're supposed to think specifically about truths connected to the blood. And who knows where people's minds would go when they start thinking about blood. And many people who are not familiar with the biblical material regarding sacrifice and blood, their minds might go off who knows where. But the Lord is again specific about what he wants connected 
to his blood. When we take this cup, think about his blood. Specifically, he wants us to think about the remission of sins. This is my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And the Lord wants us to think about the new covenant. This is the cup of my blood of the covenant. Two of, the, two of those four passages record Jesus as make, saying that this is the blood of the covenant. In the Gospel of Luke and in, the, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we've looked at, the language is, this is my blood of the new covenant. And once you start thinking about this, that at the Lord's Supper we take the cup, we're supposed to think of his blood, we're supposed to think of the remission of sins, and we're supposed to think that of the new covenant. This is my blood of the new covenant. In the Bible, covenants are guaranteed. Covenants, promises, God's promises are guaranteed on the basis of sacrifices. And that may be a difficult concept for us to comprehend, and this is not the moment to go into that, but that, that's the truth, that the promises of God are, are guaranteed and inaugurated in terms of sacrifices. And the point that Jesus is making, that the Bible makes, the book of Hebrews in particular makes, is that when Jesus shed his blood, when he actually died, that was the trigger. That was the trigger which shot the gun of the new covenant, where all the promises of the new covenant, they came into being. And what are the promises of the new covenant? Well, there are many, but some of the promises of the new covenant that should, it is our responsibility to bring something of this to mind when we hold that cup, when we hold that cup. It's the responsibility of you as the people of God. It's the responsibility of people who administer the table. What, 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 what should we think of? The new covenant promised things. The new covenant promised a sacrifice that would be perfect and complete and that once this sacrifice was offered, there would never again be a sacrifice offered for sin because that sacrifice would be absolutely effectual, absolutely effectual. And where there is that kind of forgiveness, there remains no more need for sacrifice for sin. Well, that's what happened. The new covenant sacrifice is Jesus. He took our sins. He died in our place. There is no more sacrifice ever, ever again to be offered. That new covenant sacrifice has been given. There was a promise in this new covenant. There was a promise of a perfect priest. There was the promise of a perfect mediator who would be completely knowledgeable of all of his people, deeply sympathetic with all of his people. And he would not only offer the sacrifice that would be necessary for their forgiveness, but this great priest, this great mediator would stay with them and intercede with them and counsel them and nurture them. And because this mediator would be alive forever and function forever, he would absolutely guarantee that his people would be saved to the uttermost, completely. That's part of the promise of the New Testament, this perfect sacrifice, this great savior, mediator, intercessor that would never cease and therefore never fail to do what's necessary to save us. Another, another essential big time promise of the New Covenant is that we would be given an eternal inheritance unlike the promises of the Old Covenant which focused upon the land. We would be, in the, the New Covenant, the promise would be an eternal inheritance, a heavenly inheritance where, we, where the age would shift and where we would one day, the people of God would be united with God in a perfect heaven and a perfect earth brought together. Well, the death of Jesus, specifically the blood of Jesus, is to bring to our mind the new covenant and all of its promises. And we should enrich our minds by what those promises are, that our minds can be full of those ideas when we come to the Lord's Supper because that's what the Lord wants. The Lord has not simply ordained that the Lord's Supper would involve symbols. He has also ordained that those symbols would have specific content specific truths that, we, that he associates with the symbols and it's our responsibility to bring them to our minds. There are all kinds of superstitions that have been attached to the Lord's Supper. There are all kinds of odd experiences that some people have attached to the Lord's Supper. But Jesus is very specific. I want you to remember my death I want you to use symbols, and I want those symbols to, in your mind, connect to these specific truths. Think how basic that is. 
Jesus was going to die the next day, and he was going to raise, rise from the dead, and he was going to commission these men to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And he knew that he had died for men and women and children of every possible category. Some of them would be very well educated and some of them would not. Some of them would have very high theological and philosophical capacities and some would have none. Some would be raw pagans who knew nothing and some would be old godly Jews who had a very firm foundation, but he designed a supper that was so simple and so obvious that everybody with the smallest degree of instruction could understand it. Everybody should be able to understand that that bread represents an incarnate body broken. And everybody should be able to understand when they hold that cup, and whether it has wine or grape juice in it, they hold that cup, they should realize that liquid is to convey to me truths about Jesus' blood. Specifically that because of that shed blood, my sins are forgiven. And because of that shed blood, all the promises of the new covenant have come in to their, to their genuine expression. And it's our responsibility, it's our responsibility to bring that material to our minds that we can exercise our faith on it in the Lord's Supper. The fifth characteristic of the Lord's Supper is that the Lord's, the Lord's Supper requires active participation. The Lord's Supper requires active participation. Now, it'd be great if in sermons, it would be great if you gave active participation. But you could just, you could nod off, you could be thinking about your grocery list, uh, you, not, you could be here and not be actively participating. But the Lord's Supper does not allow that. The Lord's Supper requires a participation. The, I'm perhaps making the wrong decision because of the time. I'm actually not looking at the text that I'd intended we'd look at because it, it would have become perhaps tedious. But I would like you to look at one passage in Matthew chapter 26. All of the passages, all the five of the passages I referred to have some element of imperative to them. But I'd like us to just look at the one in Matthew. Let me refer to the others. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus, take, imperative, eat, an imperative, do this in remembrance of me, an imperative. Mark 14, 22, take, eat, two, repar- two imperatives. And so you have in Matthew chapter 26, and 26 you have imperatives uh, plus. Um, chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, I'm just gonna read Verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to the disciples. Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it. What are, what are the next words? Drink from it, all of you, each of you. If you, if you grew up as a King James Bible reader, it, it's astounding that the wrong translation was in that. It was, it was the idea of drink all of it, but that's not, it's each one of you, all of you, each one of you, each one of you, take, eat, take, drink, each one of you, imperative, 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 imperative for each one of these 11 men. They were required, it wasn't optional, it wasn't something that was put before them and depending on your mood, depending on your sense of need, depending, it wasn't something that was optional, every one of them It was an imperative, you take this, you eat this, you drink this. Now you can't imagine that it was ugly. You can't imagine that they really didn't want to and Jesus is forcing it on them. You you, you should imagine that this is awing, that they would have been reluctant perhaps to do this, that they would have been reluctant to do something which, which drew them so intimately into actually consuming something that was supposed to represent the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus, but he left no doubt, he wanted them to do it. This is give, these are given as commandments to them, it's imperatives to them. Well, let me summarize these five things and bring them to the point that, that I'd like to end with, and that is that we should see, in the, in the light of what the Lord's Supper is, what these characters, we should see this as a means of grace to us we should see it as something that should be transformative to us. Here's the summary. 
The Lord's Supper was established by Jesus. We should be very interested in it because it was established by Jesus. The Lord's Supper is meant to be a perpetual reminder, whatever it is, week by week or month by month, however frequently it's celebrated, again and again and again and again, it's to remind us, it's to take us back to the death of the Son of God. We're never, ever, 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 ever to get very far from that. The Lord's Supper, by the design of Jesus, it involves symbols, symbols that every child should be able to understand with 10 minutes worth of instruction. Every child, every new Christian, every catechist, everybody should be able to understand these symbols. That's Jesus' point. They're simple, 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 simple. They're meant to convey these specific truths, which we've talked about now at length. The, the bread is to convey the incarnation, is to convey the Jesus bearing our sins in his body upon the cross, that body being broken under the wrath of God. The blood is to remind us of the remission of sins and the promises of the new covenant. There is this intention by Jesus that his people gather together and think of his death through these symbols with this kind of limited specificity about what we're supposed to think about. And he requires that his people participate. He requires that nobody's passive. He requires that everybody who's there, they think, they take the bread and they eat it. They take the cup and they drink it. That's what he expects. That's what he wants from us. Well, think of what, think of what the Lord is doing for us in this. You ever think of this concept of the means of grace, of how God brings his grace to us, how God brings transforming grace and transforming influence to us? We often think of preaching as a means of grace. Well, think of the parallels, preaching, teaching. Think of a parent teaching, preaching to his child, or a pastor preaching, teaching to the church. Think of preaching. The Bible says that people are born again through the word of truth. Jesus Jesus prayed that his disciples would be sanctified through the word of truth. There is supposed to be, in the context of the conveyance of the truth of God, there is supposed to be the generating of, of the new birth. There is supposed to be, in the regenerate there, there, regenerate, there is supposed to be the strengthening of faith. There is supposed to be a sanctifying influence. Now, probably those of you who are Christians know this in your experience. There's been some situation where you have been exposed to somebody who's moved by the Spirit to teach the Bible to you, and it's been clear to you. And God has worked in that person to convey this truth with some degree of clarity, and God has worked within you. He's worked within your mind that you understood something that you didn't understand before. He's worked within your heart where you appreciated some aspect of truth in a way that you didn't before. He's worked within your mind. He's worked within your heart. He's enabled you to respond. He's enabled you to believe. He's enabled you to change your conduct. He's enabled you to repent. He's enabled you to praise. That word has come to you. That word has come to you, and in the coming of that word and the work of the Spirit, something's happened to you. You're regenerated, perhaps, or you're helped and sanctified and encouraged. Well, something like that is supposed to happen in the Lord's Supper because it's the same principle. It's not that you have a preacher explaining to you. It's you have symbols. And it's not that you're receiving that truth so much through your ears as you're receiving that truth through your eyes and through your hands, and you can smell it. It's tactile, but it's not meant to be only tactile. It's to bring ideas of truth to your mind. And as that truth is brought to your mind, you're supposed to respond to it. As Jesus comes and in this thing that he's ordained, he wants you to take the cup. He wants you to think of his body. He wants you to eat it. He wants you to drink it. He's bringing himself in truth through symbols. He's bringing himself through truth in symbols right to your hand. And you're supposed to take him, not simply the symbols to your mouth, but him, and you're to feed on him. We're way beyond symbols now. Give it a little tiny piece of bread. But that tiny piece of bread is to display to you the incarnation of the eternal God whose body was broken for you and your heart is to be enlarged with gratitude. Let me just mention what might have been another point. Think about who these men were who received 
this tremendous display of gift. On that night, these men expressed unusual degrees of immaturity. On that night, they were arguing with each other about who should be the greatest in the kingdom. Can you imagine that? In Luke's account, this actually took place at the Lord's Supper, that somewhere after the event, they're arguing about which one of them would be the greatest. They're jealous, they're jockeying for who's gonna have the power in the kingdom. It's on that night that Jesus warns them of what's going to happen, and that they're gonna be tempted to betray him, and especially Peter, and they do. They can't sustain themselves to pray with him when he asks for them to come and pray, they fall asleep. They actually all forsook Jesus at the cross. Jesus denied Peter with oaths and curses. When you read of, and especially in John 14, of, the, of what happened in the upper room after the supper, those men are, are filled with doubt and fear. There's nobody bold in faith there. Immaturity, inconsistency, carnality, jealousy, was all a part of the complex of those men. And it was to those men that the Lord looked in their faces, this is for you. This is my body, this is for you. This is my blood, this is for you. This is for the remission of sins, this is for the new covenant, this is for you, take it, take it. I think we miss the point of the Lord's Supper if we don't appreciate what happened in the moment Those are not great men of faith at that point. They were confused and in many ways carnal. Well, somewhere along the way, people have thought that you have to raise yourself, believers have to raise themselves to some level of, of maturity and consistency before they should participate in the Lord's Supper. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Lord's Supper is for believing sinners. The Lord's Supper is for for disciples real disciples who are not what they want to be and who know that they're not in every way what they ought to be, just like these original recipients. And so we're supposed to come and we're supposed to realize that in this rite, in this ritual, in this sacrament that the Lord himself has ordained, He wants us to have that piece of bread and he wants us to have that cup and he wants us to think this is for me, this is for me, this is for me. And we're supposed to be refreshed and we're supposed to be humbled, we're supposed to be freshly forgiven, we're supposed to be helped by the ministry of Christ himself through the symbols because those symbols convey his truth. And it's as that truth is is understood and received by us that we are to be nurtured in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we participate in the Lord's Supper full of faith and full of confidence, not in ourselves, but in the truth represented by those symbols. Let us pray together. Father, it is wonderful to us to contemplate the gospel itself, that you should so love us that you would give your only begotten son. It is wonderful to to think of his voluntary humiliation in becoming a human being and the absolute humiliation of him bearing our sins in his own body. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are so willing to do this. And we thank you, our Heavenly Father, that you loved us so much to commission your Son to do this. We bless you that you have raised your Son from the dead, and we worship you, Lord Jesus Christ, as our resurrected Savior. We thank you for the kindness that you have exhibited, and also for the wisdom in anticipating our needs that you have ordained this supper for us, this memorial for us, this time to be refreshed for us. We acknowledge how much we need Christ, how much we need the effects of his death, how much we need what is symbolized by the bread and the cup. And with all of our hearts, we thank you for the provisions that you've made for us in Christ. And we pray that you would help us to be full of 
of faith and humility and gratitude and that you would work through the symbols to convey the truths to us that we would be ourselves helped and that you would be honored. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing, Behold the Lamb. sins away slain for us and we remember the promise that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross so we share and we dream his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of peace around the table of the King. The body of our Savior, Jesus Christ, for you. Eat and remember the wounds that heal, the death that brings us life. Paid the price to make us one. So we share in this bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of love around the table of the blood that cleanses every stain of sin shed for you drink and remember Drain death's cup that all may enter in to receive the life of God. So we share in this bread of life. As our sign of our bond. To follow in the steps of Christ as his body here on earth. As we share in his suffering, we proclaim Christ will come again and will join in the feet of table of the king as we share as we share in his suffering we proclaim Christ will come again and will join in the feast of heaven around the table of the king keep my comments brief because 
It was an excellent exposition of the Lord's Supper and the significance of the Lord's Supper. As I was reflecting upon the opportunity that we as a church have during this particular season of year to celebrate the Lord's death, I also recognize that we are coming into a season of Advent where we're actually celebrating His birth. And it struck me that there's the strong connection between the manner in which Christ was born and what we're doing now. And I want to call to your attention a very familiar passage to many of you. It's taken from the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 1. And and Matthew begins, and and he's talking about the way in which Christ was born and the events that uh, preceded his birth. And he starts in verse 18, and he says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus carries the meaning that God delivers. God saves. Why did Jesus come into the world? To save his people from their sins. How did Jesus do that? By dying on a cross. Our opportunity this this afternoon is to celebrate and to remember his death. And even as our dear pastor has call to mind all the symbols associated with this this ordinance. Let us remember that our great Savior was born so that he could save us from our sins. And this is an excellent opportunity to proclaim the Lord's death. For those of you who do not currently know Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is an opportunity for you to reflect. Instead of coming and partaking of this yourself, I would exhort you to look and see what's going on The people you see taking this are people who are walking with Christ, who've been baptized into Christ. Observe that. Today, you can do the same thing. You can go to Christ in your own heart. He can be your Savior. It is not a a complex transaction. It is a difficult one because of our hearts, but the Lord forgives all sin. If you come in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you place your trust in him, fully laying all of your sin in in front of him at his feet, he will forgive and he will save to the uttermost. Our practice here is for all all of you to come down and take the bread and take the cup and then go back to your seats and then we'll partake together. Before we begin, Scott, can I ask that you would thank the Lord for the cup, and for the bread. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in you. We praise your name. We praise your sovereignty and your might. But also your work in our lives individually. Through the sacrifice, 
come.
The scripture says to us that on the night when our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. Let's stand to sing, all glory be to Christ. stand no legacy survive unless the Lord does raise the house in vain its builders strive to you who boast tomorrow's game tell me what is your life a mist that vanishes at dawn? Oh, glory be to Christ. All glory. Oh, glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to